Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone who pays attention to markets, investors, journalists, and pundits, loves a striking statistic. And with this recent market downturn, there have been a lot of them floating around. Like, the S&P had its worst start to the year since 1970. And the Dow has fallen for the past seven weeks in a row, its longest losing streak since 1980. And don't forget the Nasdaq. It's in bear market territory, down more than 20% from its peak. Drill down into individual companies, and there's even more fun to be had. In October 2020, investors valued ExxonMobil less than Zoom. Now it's valued 14 times higher. And SoftBank lost around $13 billion last year. Its shares have halved in value. Cryptocurrencies have been hit too. Crypto obviously right now getting crushed. Investors getting jolted by volatility rippling through the crypto world. One minute it looks like the market's going to rip. The next minute it looks like the market's going to dip. And I don't know what in the world's going on. While all these numbers are useful fodder for a market's pub quiz. I really, really hope those exist. We would win that. We would definitely win. Love your confidence. But these numbers can sometimes be a bit distracting. The point is that when market moves are this massive, they can lead to some nasty spillover effects. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm Samaya Keynes. And I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, the sprawling impact of the recent market downturn. We'll look at why what happens in crypto might no longer be staying in crypto. I fully appreciate the irony that I invested in something called a stable coin, which <laughs> lost 90% of its value in six days. And why the meme stock crowd could end up hurting the real economy. When we look at that retail player in the US right now, it's actually bigger as an influence than the peak pace of foreign buying of US stocks that we saw over the last few years. Finally, we'll hear from Uber Bear, legendary investor Jeremy Grantham, to get the pessimist take on how bad things could get. The potential to have intersections, ramifications, unexpected failings, a financial problem here or there is profound. But before we get into all of that, we're going to go a bit meta and tell you about some recent changes regular listeners to Money Talks might have noticed. We have switched up our format and our hosting. Right. Each week, we will now dive into one idea or story in depth, like what's gone wrong with central banks. Or why proxy battles are the new front line in the battle for corporate purpose. Or what's going on with the ruble. And we are going to be your regular hosts. Sometimes it's just one of us, or sometimes, like today, you will, luckily, uh, you'll get all three of us. So we thought we would properly introduce ourselves. I'm based in Singapore. After relocating here earlier this year from Hong Kong, I'm the Asia Business and Finance Editor at The Economist. 
And even though today I'm lucky enough to be sitting in the studio in London with you, Samir, I'm usually based in the US where I'm the paper's Wall Street correspondent. That means I spend a lot of time thinking about debt markets and bank balance sheets, but increasingly the weird and wonderful world of crypto. Some listeners may remember me from my old trade days when I covered trade and globalisation. I was also covering the US economy in Washington, D.C., But now I am based in London as the Britain economics editor. Trade is still quite relevant to my beat. But yeah, now it's really Britain focused. We'd be really keen to get your views on the changes we've been making to the show and any pressing business, economics or finance questions that you might have. And normally we save this until the end, but you can write to us at podcast.economist.com and we promise we really do read all of your emails. But... Let's get into this week's episode, the market freakout. Now, the context for this is that central banks are raising interest rates. Mike and Alice, you are more tuned in to the, the twists and turns of the market than I am. What exactly is going on here? I mean, I mean, we know the basics. Central banks, like the Fed, are raising rates. That's causing investor anxiety. Uh, an Econ 101 link would be that higher interest rates mean companies have to pay more to borrow, uh, to invest, and consumers have to pay more to borrow, to spend. Both of those are bad for growth and therefore share prices. Is that what's going on here? Is it any more complicated than that? I do think that monetary policy and the Fed are the main driver of these sort of violent market moves. What you've seen is that essentially since 2020, uh, the US economy and the global economy has been in an environment of very easy monetary policy, fiscal stimulus, and all of that has come to an end this year. And in many ways, it's coming to an end more abruptly and violently than people expected. So you've had sort of additional shocks to supply chains and inflation that people weren't necessarily foreseeing. Uh, The Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Chinese COVID shutdown again. And that has really entrenched in the mind of investors and people that actually hot inflation, which we've been talking about for years or at least a year, really might not go away and that the Fed really might have to raise rates extremely aggressively, by far the most aggressively that they have done in sort of any of our lifetimes. And that, I think, is the sort of cause for all of the sort of various market freakouts. And you can definitely see that uh, the effect of that spilling over from the US to the rest of the world, including Asia, in large part because you see it spill over into dollar-denominated debt. So any country or company that's borrowed a lot in dollars during the last sort of 10 years or so when interest rates have been very low generally is now seeing the value of the the debt rise, meaning their repayments are considerably larger relative to what they're able to make. I guess my next question is why there was so much uncertainty. I mean, you know, we at The Economist have been talking about, warning about high inflation for nearly a year now. Is it just that people weren't reading the newspaper, maybe? Um, or, you know, more seriously, shouldn't investors have seen this coming when inflation was was getting so high? Shouldn't they have anticipated that, that central banks would tighten monetary policy? 
So I feel like I, I owe a sort of bit of a mea culpa on this in the sense that I certainly didn't see it coming. And I think I probably spent too long in 2020 and the first half of 2021 sort of suggesting to people I know and when I spoke to people about this that the sort of inflationary jump probably wasn't going to last. You know, I was one of team transitory. I thought that most of this was due to used car prices and weird pandemic reopening effects that couldn't possibly turn into sort of sustained inflation. I think one of the reasons for that is because if you've been in financial markets or reading about them or writing about them for most of the last 15 years, you have been burned every single time you have expected a big burst in inflation. You know, QE was always going to bring inflation and there was always going to be something around the corner and, and it never happened. And I think if you've been sort of baked into that environment, your instinct is to push back against any suggestion that there'll be a big burst of inflation coming. It's just this time that instinct was wrong, having been right most of the times in the previous sort of decade and a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that is exactly correct. I, too, thought the people that were banging on about inflation were probably over-egging it a bit. Uh, but definitely, you know, it's back with a vengeance across the entire world. And the thing that's sort of really remarkable about this phase and probably why this sell-off has been so violent is that most investors have never had to deal with investing or deploying capital in a time of high inflation. And so... Like Mike says, they were all sort of probably assuming that it would go away and that it hasn't has uh, really caused this sort of intense and sudden freak out. I suppose I should also admit that I was on team transitory and, and certainly wasn't expecting the inflation in the UK to be where it is now. And now I'm watching, you know, the comments of Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, as he's saying, you know, we couldn't have predicted a war, um, you know, fairly defensive on this point that the Bank of England should have seen inflation coming. So, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. But here we are in what feels like a pretty big inflection point for markets. And Alison Mike, I know you already covered market turmoil in February on, on Money Talks. What's different about this moment? Um, and what are some of the spillovers that we're starting to see? Well, I think earlier in the year, you'd started to see the sort of froth come off in, in private markets, for example. Um, you'd started to see a slowdown from a, a boom in activity in 2021. What you're seeing now is, I think, considerably worse than that. It's a, it's a much more protracted slowdown and drying up of activity in private markets, private fundraising for, for smaller companies especially. You know, I think one of the things that feels quite different about this moment is that when Mike and I were chatting in February, he gave this sort of excellent spiel about how the people that seemed really prophetic and successful, all the investors that were doing really well, you know, the likes of Kathy Wood and the Tiger hedge funds, you know, they all seem prophetic at that stage. And now all of those sort of investors have been washed out. You know, Kathy Wood's fund is down sort of 40% year to date or something you know, Tiger is really struggling. And so when we spoke in February, it seemed like, sure, some of the froth was coming out, but that felt sort of all sort of healthy and like you just, you were losing some of that sort of really bubbly edge. And now it does feel like we're in a real sort of sustained drawdown that actually is having some sort of quite nasty consequences, these spiller effects that we've been talking about. So Mike has mentioned the, the private market uh, fallout. I think you know, in general, a good framework for how to think about this is all the stuff that really ran up 
or really boomed over the past 10, 12 years since the last crisis is probably where things are going to get really difficult now. So that's private markets. It's probably the credit market, the high yield market. Companies are much more indebted than they were prior to 2008, in the US at least, and also stuff like crypto, which has barely existed, didn't exist in 2008, and has become this sort of $3 trillion, now down to $1.5 trillion asset class. And this bruising sell-off in crypto is really exposing some of the flakiest projects. Okay, so I know I said that you two are following the twists and the turns of, of the markets more closely than me. But when it comes to crypto, I've actually been following this fairly closely, um, partly because uh, I am actually in a WhatsApp group where every member of the WhatsApp group, we've all agreed to buy £50 of some random coin um, with the idea being that if one of them, you know, goes to the moon, then we'll share the gains, right? And so we'll all kind of become millionaires. We just need one one coin to do really well. Alice, I can see you chuckling. Is this not a serious <laughs> investment strategy? I'm absolutely devastated that you haven't invited me to this WhatsApp group. What is that about? I mean, I essentially paid £50 to be part of a WhatsApp group and to get some really great memes. 50 quid for friends, basically. I, I mean, yeah, it was a great, it was a great deal. Uh, anyway, so, you know, roughly once a week, I, I, you know, log into the app and see how well it's been doing. And for a while, I was making astonishing returns. And now I'm very much not. So, Alice... What has been going on? Why are the fruits of my joint investment looking so rotten at the moment? To answer your question, Sumea, we are going to go back in time six months, which in crypto is basically an eternity. On November 28th, which is the weekend after Thanksgiving, if you're an American, Ran Nuna tweeted to his more than half a million followers that he thought the cryptocurrency Luna would be, quote, top five. He went live on his popular YouTube channel, Crypto Banter, to make his case to his followers. And I want to show you why I think it's going to be in the top five. And then for the rest of the week, we're going to start focusing on this ecosystem to see how you can make money from this ecosystem, which I think is going to be in the top five in the next 12 months. And the project or the ecosystem is Luna. The live chat started filling up with the emojis you'd probably now expect. Rocket ships, hearts and fire. And if you look at Luna, you can see that it has defied all the all all the odds. I mean, you've got the market that went down. Now it's important to break down what he is talking about here: about Luna, the cryptocurrency, Terra, the algorithmically backed stablecoin, and the larger ecosystem. Stablecoins are an important part of the plumbing of the crypto system, a bridge between crypto and traditional banks. Each stablecoin has a mechanism to maintain its peg, which is usually with the US dollar. The simplest method by far is just to hold $1 in a bank account or in another safe liquid asset like a treasury bill for each stablecoin token that you issue. Terra was instead backed with Luna, which is another cryptocurrency. The theory went that holders of Terra could always redeem it for $1 worth of Luna, which would be created in a process run by algorithms. And, bear with me here, if the value of Terra ever dropped below a dollar, arbitrageurs would swoop in, buy it up and redeem it for one dollar's worth of Luna, which they could then sell for a profit. All of this was supposed to guarantee its stability, and that appealed to a lot of people who wanted to dip their toes into crypto investing. I've been investing since I was uh, 10 years old. Like Alex Marshy. My dad taught me how to invest in the stock market. He's a professional asset manager. 
this wasn't his first investment. One of my first investments was Facebook, which I bought for $19 a share and sold for 300 Like a lot of people, he got more interested in investing during the pandemic, including investing in crypto. I was introduced to UST and Luna via a Facebook ad for a company called Stable Gains. He told us he invested a total of $6,000. And for a while, he thought he was onto another winner, like Facebook. I felt very wise, very good. Um, (laughs) The interface of Anchor shows your uh, balance ticking up by the second. And below it, it says how much your balance will become in one year, 10 years, one month. So looking at those numbers, it fired off some dopamine shots that were very pleasurable. From being worth just a few hundred million dollars in early 2021, Luna tokens rose to a peak value of $40 billion in November, the same month Ran made it the centre of his crypto banter video. Terra became the fourth largest stablecoin. But last week, it all fell apart. We're going to talk about the market tanking. Woo-wee. Luna began to fall in tandem with other major cryptocurrencies. We're in a bad territory right now for Bitcoin. We're in bad territory for all crypto assets. This put downward pressure on Terra, which lost that all-important peg. We have a chart here of uh, Terra Luna um, <laughs> trading for less than a fraction of a penny right now. When Terra imploded, panic spread to other stablecoins, including the very biggest, Tether. Let's talk about another stablecoin, Tether. It's also having de-pegging problems. When is low as 94 cents last night? And if Tether were to fail, it would have ramifications for the entire crypto ecosystem, and potentially for traditional finance too. In this week's paper, and on our sister daily podcast, The Intelligence, I look at what this means for potential regulation down the line. But for people like Alex, it's already too late. When I saw that Luna had fallen 99.9%, it was so shocking, it almost made me laugh. He says he feels a bit betrayed by the stablecoin name. I fully appreciate the irony that I invested in something called a stablecoin, which lost 90% of its value in six days. I think that that was kind of false advertising. But he did tell us that he learned a lesson from the whole experience. I've learned that my good track record blinded me to the idea that this kind of catastrophe could happen to me. My head got swollen and it made my eyes not look at the bad things that could happen because i just assumed that they wouldn't happen to me. I was greedy and egotistical and foolish. And I uh, went through a lot of emotional pain because I I derive some of my self-esteem from my investment abilities and financial know-how. And I should have known better, but I did it anyway. And I paid the price. Well, that was quite a tale. I am very glad that no one in my WhatsApp group chose Luna. After the break, we'll hear from Jeremy Grantham. 
But before that, if you're not already a subscriber to The Economist, you should consider it. You can read Mike on what's behind SoftBank's slump. And you can read Alice on what the right regulatory framework for crypto might be in the wake of the Terra, Luna and Tether crash. You can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, you should sign up for our newsletter, Money Talks. You can find that at economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So essentially, in this show, we are going to start small and then zoom out. We started with the impact that all this market turmoil is having on crypto. Now we are going to look at retail investors more broadly. They are really the key link between what happens in markets and what feeds through to the real economy. That's right. One interesting thing about who is invested in markets this time around compared to, say, the 2008 financial crisis is that we have seen a huge number of normal people. There are more than 100 million retail brokerage accounts in America now pouring cash into markets during the pandemic. And that is something that Rebecca Patterson, the chief investment officer at the hedge fund Bridgewater, told me when I rang her up for the show. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining Money Talks. Great to be here, Alice. I mean, it feels like the sell-off has entered an even bleaker phase than, you know, even two weeks ago when we met at the Milken conference. You've seen things like high-yield issuers having to pull their auctions due to poor conditions. People are talking about contagion from the collapse of this major stablecoin to crypto, to stocks, and vice versa. Perhaps that the stock sell-off prompted crypto selling off and undid that stablecoin. So, you know, it can be quite difficult to untangle all of these different threads what do you think is driving what here? Sure. So I think one of the most interesting pieces of this right now is the retail investor. These folks got a positive boost to wealth through the pandemic, through the the fiscal and monetary policies that left them in a place where they could put money to work. And we saw some of that money going into equities. We saw some of that money, as you said, Alice, going into crypto, as well as actual goods. What's really interesting right now is that that retail flow into U.S. stock markets, it's running at a pace of about 4% of GDP. We try to track all the different players in the market very carefully as part of our analytical process. When we look at that retail player in the U.S. right now, it's actually bigger as an influence than the peak pace of foreign buying of U.S. stocks that we saw over the last few years. So it's pretty material what's happening right now. And what happens to it going forward is significant. What do you mean by that? What exactly do you see happening going forwards? So in terms of that, we're still seeing the retail investor buying the dip. 
Um, and we saw that as well in the 1990s ahead of the dot-com bubble bursting. They were one of the last investors to get out of the market. The institutional investors seemed to get out earlier. And so the question we're asking ourselves is, can the retail investor keep buying? And if and when they turn, what will cause them to turn and what will be the consequences? Um, and then what is the trickle-on effect to their confidence as consumers and to other spending they do, right? So the contagion effect we'd be looking for is through this retail channel through to wealth. We know that these retail buyers are largely middle-income consumers, so they do have a decent propensity to spend. So if they are losing money in crypto or equities, they will have less money to spend elsewhere for normal goods or services. So it could start hurting actual nominal demand over time. There isn't a lot of great data looking at the past, but what we have seen suggests that they don't tend to be one of those early canaries in the coal mine. They tend to be flipping later in the cycle. So I guess if we're thinking about things that could cause, you know, the capitulation of of retail investors and things, one of the things that I've been thinking about is when people talk about contagion between asset classes and correlations, you know, going to one and things starting to affect the real economy, you know, that reminds me of some of the 2008 style dynamics. And obviously, the sort of underlying current there was that there was a huge financial system vulnerability that was eventually exposed. Are you worried about any sort of major financial system vulnerabilities this time around that might be triggered by that, this volatility? Or do you feel fairly sanguine about those kinds of risks? I'm always on the lookout for the risks that I haven't identified yet. I think we're all worried about the thing we can't see. Uh, you know, in terms of things we can see, you know, a lot of um, a lot of ink has been spilled over crypto, especially in the last week with the uh, collapse of uh, Terra. And I think it has correctly raised questions about could we have systemic risk or financial market vulnerability from that space. Our view is at this point, while the space is growing, there isn't enough interconnectedness between it and the broader financial system yet for it to have the same sort of contagion effect that we saw, for example, with mortgage-backed securities as we went into 2007, 2008. We do think it can affect this retail investor community because a lot of the people who own these retail favorite stocks also own crypto. And so the two, as you alluded to at the beginning of our talk, Alice, they can feed into each other. Um, so that is something to monitor for that wealth effect and what it could mean for consumer confidence, consumption, and the broader real economy. Can I ask if you think about you know, the end of this year or, or this time next year, do you think we're through most of the pain or do you think that there's still a lot more to come? And what kind of scenario would provide some relief for US equities? Is it just that inflation goes away? So when we look at how these cycles have worked historically. And this cycle is different in its speed, certainly, and in the policy response. But we still find a lot of value at looking at history. And, and when we go back and look at how equities perform, what we've found is that equities tend to pretty consistently underperform other assets when you're in the early, the aggressive part of the tightening phase. When we think about where we are today, when we look at the tech stocks that are most bubbly, so to speak, and we think about what happened historically, right now we're probably halfway through that movie. In other words, if we look at the 1990s or we look at the late 1920s and we saw bubbles pop 
And we would argue that this year we've seen a bubble pop in some of the small emerging tech companies. It usually took one or two years to get through that process. And right now we think we're about halfway there. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for your time and for joining Money Talks. That was really helpful and insightful. Well, thank you so much, Alice. I love The Economist magazine. I'm delighted to be here. We love hearing that. Okay, one person who it does seem was probably listening to our warnings about inflation. Yes, at least one person has seen the many inflation covers The Economist has published. Right. And now we are going to move from retail investors to what's happening in the broader market. As we said, Alice, you spoke with Jeremy Grantham. Just in case listeners need a refresher, Jeremy Grantham started one of the world's first index funds in the 1970s. He is a big proponent of the idea of the reversion to the mean. That's the idea that all asset classes essentially revert to their historical average. And since we've been in a bull market for essentially the past two decades, he argues things are going to fall. That has led to him becoming known as a perma bear. Yeah, he didn't invest in Japanese equities when they were booming in the 1980s, and he didn't invest in the dot-com bubble in the run-up to 2000. And we have enticed him out of hibernation, or insert your favourite bear pun here, to find out what other spillovers we can expect. Hi, Jeremy. I'm Alice. I'm one of the hosts of Money Talks. How are you? Hi. <laughs> yes, nervous now. <laughs> I try. Just tried 27 different things. Well, you know, if if the thing you're nervous about is your uh, audio tech and not markets, then I guess that should be reassuring. Yes, I'm much more frightened of audio than I am of the bloody market. Uh, Great. So I think we'll just dive straight into it. You know, you've said in the past that it's, it's easy to identify a bubble and you've laid out a lot of indicators that we were in one, whether it's the valuation metrics, the crazy behavior that you talked about, the meme stocks and the SPACs and all of those things. Um, it can be harder to identify when they're going to burst, although some of the dynamics we're talking about describe that sort of turning point. What do you think it was specifically that caused that turn, though? Was it just the bubble ran out of runway or what really precipitated what we've seen this year? We're still arguing, was there any turning point in 1929? The best they can come up with was that selling came in from the country, which means it came in from Chicago rather than Boston and and New York. Um, Tell me in 2000, I mean, or in Japan. The fact is the market peaks on the day that the euphoria is the highest. And and the day after that, euphoria is very, very high. It's just a little less high than it was the day before. You are never going to find that, either on the upside or the downside, really. Uh, All you can tell is that the ice is thin anytime now, I believe that is the closest you will ever get. And uh, and I'm sticking with that. You've spoken a little bit before about how frustrating you found this year uh, as a bear. You know, even though stocks have fallen and fallen quite sharply, in particular in recent weeks, there have been these huge rallies along the way. And stocks haven't tended to fall linearly in the past. But we heard from uh, Rebecca Patterson of Bridgewater earlier in the show, and she was talking about the role that retail investors have played in this. They keep buying the dip, they haven't thrown in the towel. And she said that there was the same dynamic in 2000. The retail buyers were the last to capitulate. So how important do you think the role of retail investors has been in this cycle? Well, you can see from every measure that the retail participation was much greater than normal. And why not? It had an extra $2 trillion in in its piggy bank, uh, courtesy 
of, of unprecedented uh, stimulus programs uh, to help offset COVID. So we should have expected. Also, they had two years boring themselves to death, hiding, hi- hiding in their rooms. So it, it's not surprising that they took to the internet, that they found these websites, that they encouraged each other, and they touted their own stocks to the moon. And, uh, and that that would cause um, a grim determination to buy the dips. And I did indeed. I spent this year thinking it should come down faster. It shouldn't rally as much. <laughs> I was actually shocked when at the end of last month, the end of April, the history books were quite clear. There had never been an opening four months of the S&P that did so badly uh, since I was one year old in 1939. And uh, there had never been a NASDAQ opening worse since the beginning of NASDAQ. And I haven't checked Russell, but it's probably the same. So what a, what a gap between my impatience on one hand. I felt the market should come down cleaner and quicker and faster. And the data, which says, guys, this is about as fast as any market ever comes down. So I, I will decide to be less impatient and I will go with the data. So this is apparently the real McCoy in terms of rate of decline. Earlier on the, the show, we've talked a bit about how this sort of market crash seems to be exposing some of the vulnerabilities uh, that have built up during the boom era. Are there any vulnerabilities in financial markets that you are worried enough about um, that you think that this you know, bubble popping might be more like a 2008 or a 1929 situation and not like 2000, where you had this sort of big financial market cycle, but the economy escaped relatively unscathed? Yes. Uh, first of all, Galbraith said it brilliantly about the crash of 29, that the bigger the bubble, the greater the bezel, as in embezzlement. And it, and it will turn out that people have been behaving in a fairly weaselly fashion as it did in the housing bust. The other thing that always worries me looking back as a historian is um, the unexpected cracks. They just pop out of the woodwork. You like to think everything is neat and tidy, but when something this powerful is going on, it's an excuse to reveal any weakness in the system, however unexpected it may be. So add those all up, and that's the most worrying thing. But I believe, actually, that this is the end of a golden era, uh, which will be quite atypical in history. The period from about 95 until now has, has been Goldilocks. One of the great risks of this cycle is that this is not a clean, focused bubble in growth stocks as it was in 2000, although it has that precisely, and it looks very much like 2000. But this is also a housing bubble. And you you don't want to mess with housing bubbles. They have a a more painful and lasting effect on the economy because they're more broadly owned and they represent a larger fraction of the wealth of of ordinary people. So do not have housing uh, in trouble along with stocks. And if you throw in commodities and, and bond prices, which have already lost trillions of dollars, so we've managed to bubble literally everything that matters and the potential to have intersections, ramifications, unexpected failings, 
a financial problem here or there is profound. We have a very fragile and vulnerable system. So I guess, you know, all of the dynamics that have been predicated on inflation being low, you think they can no longer really be um, in place. Just just to play devil's advocate here, you know, what do you say to people who say, well, you know, we've had an almost 20% decline in the S&P and more than that in the Nasdaq. That's a pretty healthy correction. We're back to 2020 levels. And OK, house prices have gone up a lot, but there's a shortage of supply. There's this huge sort of millennial cohort moving into buying houses. So it's all makes sense. Nothing to see here. You know, what do you say to those people who who just think that you're, you're over-regging it, I guess? Um, well, I'm very tempted to say wait and see. But... <laughs> I think what people forget is however much you supply cash that can push the market price up, all it takes is one day to arrive when there are no buyers and plenty of sellers. And the excess cash of the previous year, the previous 20 years, the previous 100 years, it's all irrelevant. The market will clear today based on today's supply and demand. Okay, so the question that's probably at the top of most, you know, layman people's minds when they hear you talking about all this and how it will all come undone is, you know, how bad is this going to be for my my real life, my everyday life? Is this just a financial market problem where maybe my retirement accounts suffer, but I'm going to keep my job? Or, you know, how bad is this going to get for individuals? Are they going to lose their, their jobs? Is that is that what you're saying? No, it's economics finance, infinitely complicated, and except in the broadest elements of the most overdone stock markets and housing markets, pretty much impossible to call. So the, the honest answer to that is, who knows? My fear is that if you look at the kind of things we've been discussing, uh, you have to believe the probabilities of a recession are, are very high. If you go back and look at the four great bubbles uh, of the 20th century and 21st century, uh, 1929, 2000, uh, uh, Japan, and the housing bubble of 08, and you find that every one of them, of course, is followed by a recession, some mild, some severe. The best you can hope for, if you haven't messed with housing, is a 2000 uh, mild recession. But the worst you can hope for if you mess with housing and other things is much worse. And we check off the list of the much worse. Well, at least we will be forewarned. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. Well, thank you. Well, that was sobering. Yeah, I guess they don't call him the perma bear for nothing. Since it feels a bit too grim to end on that, we have decided to introduce one more new element to the show. It's the statistic that we just can't get out of our heads each week. Look, we started the show with numbers. We're numbers people. Okay. So, Alice, favourite stat of the week? What have you prepared? Yes, so uh, this has nothing to do with markets, which are on my mind all of the time. But I watched a BBC documentary with my parents on Sunday night about Blenheim Palace. And apparently the beautiful lake that's in front of this old country home is filling up with silt. And so they're going to dredge this lake so that the view from Blenheim remains pristine and wonderful. And this is going to require them dredging 300 cubic metres of silt, which would fill Wembley Stadium. So in my downtime, when I'm not thinking about markets, I'm thinking about Wembley full of mud. 
Okay, we're really leaning into our English vibes um, with this with this episode. Yes, if you haven't noticed, I am British. <laughs> oh, really? I hadn't. Uh, that's that's news. Mike, can you beat mud? My stat of the week is two hundred million, um, and to be more precise, it's negative two hundred million. Uh, this comes from the CEO of China's largest semiconductor company, that is Semiconductor Manufacturing International Co., who says demand for mobile phones in China is cratering. He says that there will be 200 million fewer units of smartphones sold this year, the majority of which will be from domestic Chinese phone makers, which I thought was a pretty interesting sort of look at what's going on in the Chinese economy. We saw some pretty horrendous Chinese economic data the other day. Uh, what the cost of the various lockdown and COVID-19 policies going on right now seems to be. So Mike pays attention to you know numbers that really matter for the world and his job. And I just think about mud. I guess we should not leave Sumeya out. So Sumeya, what, uh, what stat have you been thinking about this week? Well, my stat relates to uh, pay. My number is 25%, which is the cash increase in pay in the finance sector between December 2019 and March of this year. So since before the pandemic, cash pay in finance has risen by 25%, and that compares to 15% in all sectors, right? So somehow people in the finance sector are absolutely killing it in terms of their pay packages. And that is is kind of big enough that actually you're seeing this amazing reversal of a trend in the UK. So before the pandemic, earnings inequality really wasn't rising very much. Actually, it was pay of the poorest that was rising most quickly. But now it's really pay of the richest that is increasing most quickly. So you've got this reversal of the trend. Earnings inequality seems to be on the rise. So finance people, how how are you doing it? I want to know. Financial journalists presumably don't come under that category. No. I I have some emails to send. If if they do, I need to make some inquiries. Our thanks this week to Jeremy Grantham and Rebecca Patterson. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Today's show was produced by Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast. And the show is edited by Kim Gittelson. You can thank her for all the terrible puns. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. And in London. And in Singapore. This is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.